Well, good morning, and welcome to Convergent Church. It's wonderful to see you all. Hopefully you are having a good week. It is incredibly hot outside. I do not know what is going on. I stood outside for like two minutes to do check-ins, and my entire body started to sweat. And I was like, Lord, now I have to go preach. Great. Fantastic. Because you know I get sweaty. But anyways, I digress. Uh, This morning, we're going to be continuing in our Summer in the Psalm series. And actually, we are going to be rounding out the series uh, today. And as I thought about um, the summer and the different psalms that we've walked through, the different guest preachers we've had, and the different perspectives um, on this grand book that is just songs of the saints dealing with all kinds of life situations, there was just one truth that just coming back to me. And it's just that despair is sort of a frequent reality in life. And I hate that it is that way, but it's true. Life certainly is not cookie cutter. It's not perfect. Things happen. You know, dreams dissolve. Families shatter. Futures crumble. And, and one thing that I think I've, I've taken away, well, well, maybe two things. We'll get to the second thing. One thing I've taken away this summer is that to live in this world is to experience moments of deep despair. To be a human in a sinful and broken world is to experience moments of deep despair. And as we do, at times, we can be tempted to believe that God has perhaps forgotten us or abandoned us. Our hope in God can fade. But, but one thing that the Psalms constantly pushes for us is that even in the midst of trials and despair and, and awful, awful situations, when our hope seems to fade, God is still good. And so that's what I'm going to preach about today. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 42. And we're going to seek to answer this question. What do I do when my hope fails? What do I do when my soul's hope fails? Now, the psalm we're getting ready to read is titled A Maskil of the Sons of Korah, yet it's historically believed that this this psalm is actually written by King David and given to the sons of Korah, which were a group of Levites, they were worshipers in the tabernacle, that David wrote it and he gave it to them and said, use this in the tabernacle to bless the people and to bless God. And this view has been, been held by great theologians, men like Matthew, Henry, Richard Sibbs, Charles Spurgeon, and James Montgomery Boyce, men who are far more intelligent, far more learned, far more studied than I am. And I spent about four hours trying to figure out who wrote this dang psalm. And so I just decided that I was going to listen to guys who are a lot smarter than me, and I was going to trust them. So it's thought that this psalm was written during David's flight from his son Absalom. You see, David, with all his talents and strengths, was actually terrible at managing his own household. You see, David's oldest son, Amnon, was enamored with David's young daughter, Tamar. She was Absalom's sister. One day, Amnon sends for Tamar. He wants to speak with her, and when she comes to him, she comes alone in the palace, and he forces himself upon her, and he disgraces her. And we have kids in the room, so we'll just say a word that rhymes with grapes. How's that sound? But he does an awful and terrible thing to her. David heard about this, and while furious, David decides he's not going to do anything. In the aftermath of this, David's son Absalom invites her to stay with him while Absalom waits for justice. 
For two years, Absalom waits for this injustice that is done to his sister to be corrected. He's waiting for his father to do something, and yet for two years, David does absolutely nothing. And so Absalom waits until an opportunity arises. One day, Absalom summons all of the king's son to a feast outside of Jerusalem at a, at a property that he owns. He's celebrating a great harvest that has come in. And with all of David's sons present, Absalom has his servants rise up and murder his older brother Amnon in front of all of the sons of David. Kind of puts perspective on our family issues, doesn't it? <laughs> but after this, Absalom, he flees Jerusalem, he flees the presence of his father, and he stays away from Jerusalem for three years. Eventually, David's uh, nephew, Joab, who's also the commander of David's armies, goes to David and says, you know, maybe you should invite Absalom back. And, and, and through some rather nefarious and underhanded ways, he convinces David to, to allow Absalom to come back to the city, to invite him back to Jerusalem. But he says he, he has to come under two circumstances. He says the first circumstance is that he cannot live in my palace anymore. He cannot live in my house. And number two, I don't want to see his face. And so Absalom comes back to Jerusalem, and for three years this goes on. He's living in Jerusalem, he has his own home, but he's not allowed to see his father. He desperately wants to speak to his father. He's constantly sending, asking his father's servants, can I speak with my father? Can I please speak with my father? But he can't, so he decides, in order to get some attention, he's going to go to Joab's field, and he's going to set his field on fire. Can you imagine that? It's like your parent won't speak to you, so you shut, set their car on fire, right? It's like, it's like somebody's going to speak to me, right? Absalom thinks, you know, my father did nothing about Amnon, and he's punishing me for seeking justice. What kind of king is he? What kind of man is this man? What kind of father is he? And Absalom sets his heart against David. And while in the aftermath of this burning of this field, Absalom and David have this sort of short-lived reconciliation, Absalom begins to actively conspire against the kingship of his father. Absalom now wants to be king. And for four years, Absalom begins to speak against the kingship of David. He goes and he sits at the gate of the uh, city of Jerusalem, and he begins to speak against David about how David's not that great of a king, and, and I would make a better one. Absalom's charismatic. The Bible tells us he's handsome, that he's well-spoken, and he eventually wins the hearts of the people of Jerusalem, and he decides, I'm going to take over. I'm going to mount a coup against my father. And this results with David taking about a thousand of his most loyal followers and fleeing north from Jerusalem to shelter in the mountains. And the last thing that David tells his servants is this. It's concerning the Ark of the Covenant. His servants are trying to take the Ark of the Covenant with the king. They want the presence of God to go with the king. And David tells them this. He says, take the Ark back into the city. Take it to the tabernacle. Because if I find favor in God's eyes, he's going to bring me back to Jerusalem. He's going to restore me. I will see the Ark of the Presence, and I will worship him in his dwelling place. Those are David's last words to his servants. And Absalom is so enraged and embittered against his father. He wants to disgrace his father. He takes all of his father's concubines and he takes them to the roof of the palace and he sleeps with them in front of all of Jerusalem. Again, I have family issues, but not <laughs> like this, right? 
Absalom wants everyone to know that he is in charge now. And it's from this place, driven from his kingdom, failed as a father, disgraced as a king, with his family in shambles, removed from the very presence of God and running from his life that David writes this psalm. Today I'd like to draw out five great reasons to despair from the lamentations of David. Let's read Psalm 42. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and multitudes and keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? O why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mitzar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me a prayer to the God of my life. I say to my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with deadly wounds in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In this psalm, we find five great reasons to despair. The first is a depressing distance. This is when God feels distant from us. In verse 1, David says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? There are a few things so crippling to the Christian faith than a sense that God is not present with us. Now, David was physically removed from the presence of God in the tabernacle, the place where God promised he would dwell and reside. But for the Christian, we can experience an even more perplexing feeling of God's distance. Because there are some truths that we know about God. First, we know that God is everywhere at all times, right? He's omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times. He is no more nearer to you than he is to me, than he is to a believer in China, than he is to Kim Jong-un. He is near to everyone. Not only that, but for those who trust in Christ, we have the Spirit of God living in us. We literally have God dwelling in us, but at times, God can feel incredibly distant, can't he? It's an awful feeling to know that God is near, but to feel that he is not. And it can lead to this sort of spiritual depression of sorts, a depression that makes us cry out for some relief in the presence of God. I want you to picture David in this moment. He's fleeing for his life. He's tired. He's exhausted. He's spiritually depleted. 
He's crippled and crushed by the circumstances he finds himself in. And he paints a very vivid picture for us of what this feels like, of what it feels like to be in such a deep need for God, yet to feel that need going unquenched. He gives us the imagery of a deer racing for its life away from trouble and away from predators, panting, gasping, hoping to come across the stream and perhaps find a moment of refreshment, knowing that if they do not find water, they will certainly perish. David feels he needs God so deeply, he does not simply call him God, but he calls him the living God. David is saying, you are the God who gives life. David is saying, God, I need you more than I need to live. Can anyone here relate? Has anyone been in a situation like that? Perhaps there are circumstances in your life right now or that you've recently gone through that made you feel like the despair is so great you are so deeply thirsty for God's presence to come into the situation you're in that you're crying out in desperation. You're saying, God, if you don't come to me, I will die. My friends, the only thing better than the presence of God is a resolve to cry out for God until he comes. My soul is too often satisfied with a mere taste of God, when, when my days are bright, but when my days grow dark and dangerous, something awakens within me. It awakens within the Christian that says, I must drink deep of God's presence or I will certainly die. Distance from God is a great reason to despair. And for those who love God, it can feel worse than death. Why? Why does distance from God hurt so badly? It feels this way because the fundamental reason we exist, the reason we were created was to know God and be known by God. Your soul was not created for distance from God, but a deep and close intimacy with him. That's why it hurts so much when he feels distant. So I just want to ask you a question. How close do you feel God is right now? How close do you feel God is right now? Is he standing over you, rubbing your shoulders close? Is he sitting in the chair next to you close? Maybe he's, maybe he's in that room over there close. Maybe for some of us, he's corona close. And I'm sure there are some of you here this morning that say, I feel as if God is on the other side of the world. He could not feel further from me than I do right now. Trust me, you're not alone. And David attests to this. For David, God, God may as well have been on the other side of the world. So removed was he from the presence of God. And standing between David and the presence of God, being able to come into God's presence was a hungry army led by a bitter and angry son that was crying for his blood. Here's one thing that we can rest assured of. When God feels the most distant, the taunts of the enemy grow the loudest. When God feels distant, the taunts of the enemy grow the loudest. The enemies of God, Satan and his demons, they love to kick God's children when they're down. Satan does not fight fair. When our faith is at its weakest, it's, 
then that the enemies of God redouble their efforts to crush what little faith we may muster. They speak to us with a deadly and dreadful derision. Now, derision is when people taunt and mock us, and David finds, us, finds himself in a situation just like this. The words of others can often compound our feelings of distance from God. Have you ever been walking through a season of darkness and perhaps depression, and you are desperately just trying to keep this flicker of flame of faith that you have alive, and someone comes along to sneer or jab you because of your continued faith in God? This is what David is experiencing. Look what he says in verse 3 and in verse 10. He says, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And in verse 10, is with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? David is in the pits of despair. He's so broken that he's not even eating. David cries all day long. And he's saying, my daily bread is, is constant suffering. And instead of living water in your presence, God, I'm, I'm drinking the salty tears of my shame. I can imagine David weeping over what has become of his kingdom and what has become of his family as soldiers come to him and ask, Oh, great king, why do you continue to cry out to a God who has clearly abandoned you? The truth is that the accusation that comes from the enemy is not whether God exists, but whether God cares. See, Satan doesn't come to you and say, is God real? He knows God is real. He will try to convince you that God does not care. And that is where our faith can falter. I remember when my father passed away last year, I was, I was grieving the loss of my last parent. I had lost my mother uh, several years before that. And I was sitting there, I was talking to one of my coworkers. He was a, he's a really good friend. He's not a brother in Christ, but he's, a, he's probably one of my closest non-Christian friends. And I was talking to him about how I felt and my faith. And he asked me a question. He said, he said, Jameson, what reason do you have to trust God? If this is how God treats those who trust him, I don't understand why you continue to follow him. And it wasn't a taunt or a jab. He didn't mean anything by it. It was just simply... Him asking, and I wish in that moment I could have had a better answer. I can't even remember what I said. But all I know is his questioning wasn't very helpful in that moment. And worse, my, my inner monologue, that voice in my head and that voice in my heart picked up on that thought, and where is your God turned into where are you, God? And instead of the voices on the outside asking me, why do you believe, my soul began to ask, yes, why do you believe? It was as if I had these two persons inside of me, one trying to fan the flame of faith and the other one trying to pour water on the flame. Can you relate to that? I want to ask you a question. What's the tone of your inner voice? What does your inner voice say to you? Is it encouraging? Does it often fan the flame of faith that's alive inside of you, or is it discouraging? Does it often try to pour water on the faith that's there? Sadly, most often for me, and perhaps for you, I'm a pretty pessimistic person, but I smile a lot. Discouragement often wins the day for me. My inner voice often sounds like Job's wife. 
who as he was walking through the season of the deepest suffering he'd ever been in, her only advice for him was curse God and die. The voices without and the voices within can give us great reasons to despair. And trust me, you could never question my faith like I can question my faith. But not every season is full of distance and doubt, is it? I can remember times when all was not so. It was not all darkness and gloom. And so can David, and I'm sure so can you. A third great reason to despair can be dreams of past delight. This is when the past seems better than the present. David says in verse 4, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. David laments, and he begins to think of past seasons of life. He remembers how he would go with the people of Jerusalem up to Mount Zion, to the tabernacle, to bask in the presence of God with loud shouts and with singing and with dancing and with feasting. A hungry and broken David is daydreaming about seasons of joy and abundance that he had experienced in God's kingdom. David has traded the mountain of God's Majesty for a mountain of mourning. There's one thing that I find to be very true. As I've talked to many people and as I've analyzed my own life and my own thoughts and as I've read the Bible, from a human perspective, the past will often seem brighter than the present. The human soul loves to live in the glory days. I'm not sure why, but we do. When we think back before the divorce... When we think back to when that loved one was still with us, eating at the dinner table, back before the diagnosis, back before the surgery, back before the layoffs started at our job, back before our business failed, back before the betrayal of a friend, or back before all the bullying started, When God seemed close and attentive and the voices were calm and sweet and life was bright, we can often want to go back. This is where David finds himself. For me, this most often looks like looking back at seasons of spiritual health and vitality that I wish I was still in. Anybody had that season as like a young Christian where you're like, I'm killing it? Anybody? Just me? (laughs) Just like, yes, yeah. But season, as a young Christian, you're like, I just, it's great. I've got my Bible time, I'm praying, I'm fasting, I'm probably boasting about it, right? It's like, <laughs> but I like to, my mind wants to go back, right? I find myself asking God, why can't I go back there? And not only that, but I think about the significant trials I've been in my life and how they've shaped my future, and I often think, God, why can't I go back and make my decisions differently? Chelsea and I had the chance to get away for a day, and we went over to White Cloud, Michigan. And on the, I have to say Michigan, because, yeah, whatever, White Cloud. (laughs) But as we were driving back, we were just talking about life, and I find myself talking about what are the things I would do if I could go back and change things. And I found myself talking out loud, and my wife was being awesome. She was just listening. But I'd go back, and I'd get my mother into rehab. I tell my dad I loved him more often, and I'd visit him more frequently. 
I would cherish the friendships that I've lost. I would choose my words far more carefully. I would seek reconciliation faster. I would put my hands to to better and more life-giving activities. I would not sacrifice nearness to God for the feeling of accomplishment and progress. I would kill my sin sooner. I would, I would, I would, I would. And I can imagine David's I woulds. What would David's list look like? The Bible actually tells us that the reason that this is happening is a direct correlation because of his adultery with Bathsheba. We preached about that a few weeks ago. God said that the sword would never leave his family because of this. I can imagine David's list. I would have never stayed home that day. I would have went off to war where I was supposed to be. I would have never slept with her. I would have never sent her husband out to the front lines to die. I would have never covered it up. I would have been a good father and protected Tamar. I would have dealt with Amnon. I would have sent for Absalom. I would have forgiven Absalom. I would have confronted Absalom. I would have reconciled with Absalom. Oh, Absalom, how I failed you as a father. Christian, what does your list of I woulds look like? And are you living in I would? Now, remembering the past can be helpful. There are great times of fruitfulness that can help reassure our faith. There's no doubt about that, and that's a good thing. But that's not what's happening with David. He's looking back and he's lamenting, saying, Oh God, the things I've done have taken me from this. If we aren't careful, looking back and idolizing the past can actually make the present seem far darker than it actually is. And when we live in the past, it can make it very hard for us to move into the future that God has planned for us. Now, we don't know what that future is. There's a very real possibility that the trials that we're in now may not be the end of our season of despair. And and David gets at this when he says in verse 7, he says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. A fourth great reason to despair is a deep distress. This is when your trials seem to have no end. When they seem to be coming like wave after wave after wave. David feels the trials that he's facing will not stop. If you look at the time frame of of just the things that are happening with Absalom, it's about 12 to 14 years that he's been dealing with this. And high in the mountains, David looks at the waterfalls that doubt the land, and he says, that's me. I am like that waterfall. I feel weighed down as if the constant bombardment of water is falling upon me. The constant noise of raging water surrounds me, and it it never stops. And, And like this water that fell from a great height, I too fell from a great height. And I've been plunged down into the deeps. I am in deep distress. But there's also hope here. David says, you know, God, you're distant, but you're in this. God, you're not here as I want you here, but if I'm drowning, I'm drowning in an ocean of your design, God. He's saying, you've measured my despair, and every drop that's filling my lungs has filtered through your sovereign hands. This is not beyond your control, God. 
And yet, with a small spark of hope, the waves keep coming. As the constant heat of the sun can fade bright colors and the constant hacking of a small axe can fell a great tree, as the constant rushing of water can erode even the greatest and strongest of stones, trial after trial after trial can crush even the strongest child of God. No one is immune. But our perspective in trial matters. Our perspective in trial matters. Christian, what is your perspective in your trials? How do you look at the despairs of life when you're in them? They may be coming like wave after wave after wave after wave, but Christian, let me ask you, who controls the waves? Is it not God who controls the waves? Are your trials deeper or stronger or more tenacious than God? I think not. It's as if David is saying, yes, my sorrow is deep, but God, you're deeper. It's as if he's saying, you know, there's a deep part of me that's crying out for you, God, but I know that there is a corresponding depth in you, a corresponding depth in you, Lord, that can supply every one of my needs. He's saying, I know these troubles cannot be more stubborn than your love for me, God. Answer me. The depths of my soul which you created are crying out for the depths of you, God. Answer me. You can see this hope and this faith starting to rise in David as he pours out his soul to God and he pleads for God to just answer him. But there's a final reason that David despairs. It's a discontinued dialogue. This is when you're crying out for God to answer you, and yet God seems slow or unwilling to answer. In verse 9, David says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? This is when you're crying out to God, but it seems that God has forgotten you when you need answers, but God's not providing them. When you're seeking an explanation, but, but God's not giving one. When you need to hear God's voice, but all you're getting is radio silence. When you're praying to the heavens, but it seems like your prayers are constantly hitting the ceiling and falling back to earth. What could be more discouraging than believing that God promises to hear and listen and answer our prayers, and yet he chooses not to respond? This is where David is. A depressing distance, a dreadful derision, dreams of past delight, deep distress, and discontinued dialogue. The Christian life has no shortage of reasons to lose hope. But David asks a very interesting question in verse 5 and in verse 11. He asks the question, he says, why? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil with me? It's a curious question, especially for someone who just spent an entire psalm pouring out a litany of reasons to God why he should be depressed and in despair. See, so why, David? We see why. What do you mean, why, David? 
We live in this world too, do we not, David? We have many reasons to despair. What do you mean, why, David? You sound like a fool. What do I do when my soul's hope fails? David shows us what to do. He gives us the answer. When the hope of my soul fails, I speak to my soul. I speak to my soul. See, David's why in verses 5 and 11, he's not asking his soul for reasons why he should be in turmoil. David has plenty of those. He's just given them to us. He's asking his soul if the reasons his soul is despairing are good enough. That's what he's asking. He's saying, soul, stack up your calamities, pile up your proof, line up all these reasons, and I will present you with a greater reason to rejoice. I will present you with something greater than your five reasons to despair. I have one greater reason to rejoice. And it's because I have a divinely determined destination. God has promised to see us safely home. He promised it to David and he most certainly promises it to the Christian. David ends this psalm with a critical affirmation of what God's going to do. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil with me, hoping God for what? I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Do you remember what David said before he left Jerusalem? He said, take the presence of God back. Because if I find favor in God's eyes, he will bring me back. I will see the ark and I will worship in God's presence. David is saying, God's going to see me home. God is going to give me that favor. For David, home in the presence of God meant Jerusalem. It meant the tabernacle. But for the Christian, where is home? It's not here. Where is home? Home is heaven. Home exists beyond this life. It's a heaven. It's a glorious future that has been promised to us by what God has done through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And David found favor in God's eyes. David was promised by God that he would keep his covenant and bless him. But what do we have, Christian? We have unmerited favor. We have grace that is not of our doing, that is not based on our works, that is not based on our worth. We have grace. Because of what God has done. We have grace because of Jesus Christ. And we have a greater covenant than David had. It's not a covenant that's sealed by the blood of birds and beasts. But it's a covenant that is sealed by the holy and obedient blood of Jesus himself. It's an unbreakable promise. And because of this truth, because of what God has done, we can speak to our depressed and crushed and deflated souls, and we can say, there is a greater promise that God will keep to me. David speaks to his soul, and he says, soul, let me show you a reality that's greater than my present circumstances. Soul, let me educate you on who God is. Soul, let me remind you of what God has promised you. I can't explain things now. I don't understand what's going on now, but I will set my hope on what God has promised me in the future. See, my friends, explanations can satisfy your soul's curiosity, but only God's promises can settle the turmoil in your soul. And when 
the hope of your soul fails, tell your soul where to go to find renewed hope. When the deer is thirsty, it finds water. When your soul thirsts for hope, lead it to the deep well of God's promises where hope is abundant. David says, speak to it, Christian. Don't let your inner voice speak to you. Don't let your soul tell you what's going to happen. You speak to it. Challenge your own soul. Parents, like you challenge your child. When you say, was that a good enough reason for you to eat that cookie? No, it wasn't. Challenge your soul. Tell it what to do. Demand of it an explanation for being downcast. Demand that it prove to you that the reason it is despairing is greater than God's promises. And if you do, it will not be able to. It will not be able to prove that to you. In light of who God is and what he has done, we say, soul, how dare you be downcast within me? You, soul, must not know who my God is. He is my hope. He is the author and the finisher of my faith. He started my story, and he has promised that he is going to end it. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hope lies in the future and God's promises. David does not say praise is rising now. He's pouring out his soul to God. He doesn't pretend that things are okay. Things are not okay. Christian, do you know that it's okay that things are not okay? <laughs> it's okay that things are not okay. David doesn't hear God's voice now. He doesn't see God's glory now. He's not basking in God's presence now. But he says, soul, you and I both know that this is not how God promises my story will end. This is not it. I will trust in his promises. And you, soul, will fall in line. So let's round out with a question in a couple smaller points. When we speak to our souls, what do we speak about? Because I don't want to yell at you and tell you to speak to your soul and not tell you what to say. What do we speak about? Firstly, we speak to our souls about God's love for us in Christ. We speak to our souls about God's love for us in Christ. Your soul needs to be reminded that God loves you. It needs it. God's love is the foundation of all that he does. He sent Christ because he loves us. Christ died because he loved us. He sustains us because he loves us. He forgives us and redeems us because he loves us. The solid ground of your soul's hope in God is the unshakable and faithful love of God in Christ Jesus, and we must remind ourselves of it. Number two, we speak to our souls about God's faithfulness to us. Our soul needs to be reminded that God is not a liar. It needs to be reminded that God is not a liar. That every promise he makes comes to pass. That he will do what he says he will do. It may not look how I want it to look. It may not make sense to me right now. But he will in no way divert his course from the truth of his word. He will do what he says he will do. Soul, my God, is faithful. Number three, we speak to our souls about God's power. Your soul needs to be reminded that God is in control. It needs to be reminded that God is in control. We say soul, it's not as if God promises something without knowing whether or not he'll be able to deliver. God does not hope as we hope that somehow when a, 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 
outcome will come to pass. No. All of human history is laid out by and before God. He sees it all. Nothing stands in the way of his power and will. No might can match his might. No wit can fool him. No force can hope to slow him down. He's all-powerful. And soul, neither will you stand in his way. Soul, just like everything else falls in line, you will fall in line as well. Oh, my downcast soul. And lastly, we speak to our souls about heaven. We speak to our souls about heaven. We say, soul, you and I both know that the story does not end with us abandoned in the mountains of mourning, but it ends with us full of life on the mountain of majesty. That's what we tell our soul. We say, even should my life be taken from me at this very moment, even if the trial gets so deep that I lose my life, there is a new life on the other side of death that awaits me. That's what we tell our soul. We say, even though everyone might forsake me, if my mother and my father may abandon me in this life, I have a father who is calling me home in the next life. And every day, whether it's sunshine and rainbows or whether it's dark clouds, every day is one step closer to my glorious destiny, soul. Heaven awaits me. We say, Jesus has written my ending in his blood, soul. This is not the last chapter of my life. No matter what today looks like or what tomorrow looks like or yesterday looks like, my final breath in this life will be the first life, first breath of a new life. That's what we tell our soul. So Christian, place your hope squarely on the promises of heaven. And the one who awaits you in the hope of your soul can never truly fail. If your hope is anchored in Christ, it can never truly fail. As long as a spark of faith burns in your soul, you'll be safe. Because here's the thing, Christian. It's not a bright and vibrant and strong faith that saves. It's a true faith that saves. Do you understand that? It's not killing it every day that saves. It's not always being positive or being joyful. Life is hard and life is long. It's not a bright faith that saves, it's a true faith that saves, a faith that is anchored in Jesus, not in my strength, not in my ability, in his strength and in what he has done for me. You speak to your soul about the great promises of God, and Christian, do not stop until the darkness lifts. Don't stop. And the brightness of God's presence surrounds you, whether or not that be in this life or the next. Here's the reality. Some of us will walk through life pretty chipper. We'll be pretty chipper. Some of us will walk through life and we'll be pretty down. But the good news is that how we walk through life is not as important as the life to come. I'd like to leave you with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who, if many of you know, suffered with deep and dark depression his entire ministry. He said this, he said, hope is like the sun, which as we journey towards it, casts the shadow of our burden behind us. And so my friends, turn your eyes away from your despair and turn your eyes to the brightness of God. And as you walk towards God, as you plead for God, as you beg for God to come to you, the darkness of your burden will cast itself behind you a little bit at a time. 
When I first was saved, I think probably the first hymn I ever learned was Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And I was just wondering if we could close by singing that if you know the words. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Lord, we are in awe of your faithfulness to us. We are simply in awe of it. But we were so thankful for your promises in Jesus. And we're so thankful that when our soul doubts, we can look to those promises in your word. That we can remind our souls of who you are and what you've done. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to come and be with us. Lord, so that daily as we walk out this life, we would constantly be reminded of the things that you've accomplished for us. And Lord, I pray, too, that you would knit us together as a family so that we would remind one another of the truth of what you're going to do. Lord, for those of us who are in despair, who are in darkness, who are suffering with depression, I pray, God, that you would just, just grab them, Lord, by the cheeks like some of us grab our children and just look them in the eye and say, I'm here. But Lord, even if you choose not to, I pray that they would find solace in what you've done, that hope would arise in them, God, that they would be able to continue to hope. Lord, you are a God of comfort, and you are a God of hope. Lord, we thank you for this summer. Lord, we thank you for the way that you've remedied and mediated and spoken to our hurts, God. Lord, we love you, and we're so thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.